Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Liberal Cabinet begins its three-day retreat today to hash out the government's fall playbook. What's the main talking points going to be? On this past Labor Day weekend, of course, a devastating series of attacks resulted in death and injuries that instantly made the James Smith Cree Nation famous. Ken Coates is a distinguished fellow and director at the Indigenous Affairs Program at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He will join us to talk about his recent experience there. And what are the top 10 threats to childhood safety? We'll tell you about that as well. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Federal cabinet ministers are in Vancouver for a three-day retreat as they prepare for the fall sitting of parliament. Uh, of course, a new conservative leader, uh, the ongoing pressures of COVID-19 recovery, and of course, inflation. Everybody's talking about inflation. Uh, the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc, says the discussions are basically going to focus on the economy, including housing affordability and inflation. We have been working on these affordability issues I'm for on, many yes, years. I'm on we Zoom understand the anxiety of Canadians, and that is the focus of our work yeah. here in Vancouver. We're not here to, uh, to spend a lot of time worrying about who the Conservative Party will choose as their next leader. But it's going to be on their minds, uh, notwithstanding what Mr. LeBlanc says there. But uh, it's going to be a balancing act to try to accommodate some of the concerns that are, are going to be coming to the table here with the cabinet ministers, and at the same time, uh, trying to be economically uh, feasible, I guess we should say. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Daniel Beland, uh, the director of McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for the invitation. Let's talk a little bit about what they're going to be talking about here. We just heard from um, Minister LeBlanc saying, look, they want to talk about inflation, they want to talk about affordability. Uh, invariably, when governments talk about that, they talk about maybe some sort of financial assistance. Uh, given the, fa the fact that inflation is still raging in this country and still much of a problem, uh, cutting checks is probably not a good option at this stage, is it? Yeah, I mean, some provinces have done it, but it might not be. Uh, and, and there is so much uncertainty uh, about about the economy and and the problem too is that they don't want to make things worse <laughs> so to do things that could exacerbate uh, inflation um and so this is really a, a a tough spot to be in for any uh, any government and it's not the first time we have high inflation uh, we witnessed that say in the late 70s early 80s and frankly um you know it was it was a uh, very difficult situation for governments because you can um, try to solve the problem by creating uh, other uh, issues. And so I think that they have to be very careful here. But at the same time, uh, as, as you and I have talked about in the past, this is a minority government. And uh, they pretty much exist right now at the, the pleasure of the new NDP, who are pressuring them to, to start spending money, specifically on a couple of programs, of course, uh, the Farmer Care Program and, and the, the Universal Dental Care Program. Uh, the, the, that's one element that they're going to have to deal with, isn't it? Because, I mean, the NDP have pretty much drawn a line in the sand and said, if these aren't in play by the end of the year, we withdraw our support. So they, they can't just ignore that, can they? No, exactly. So I'm sure they will talk about that. There is for dental care, um, they normally, to fulfill their obligations under the agreement with the NDP, they need to um, uh, start to implement this um, coverage for uh, kids under 12 uh, who live uh, uh, in a family that has an income lower than 90000 So that's the first thing. And they also need to, uh, if they want to fulfill their obligations under the agreement, uh, they also need to um, top up the, the Canada housing benefit uh, for up to $500. Uh, 
Uh, and these, I think this measure could also be uh, framed as, you know, a, a way to address uh, uh, and, and flesh, inflation pressures, right? But it's true that they, they need to act. Uh, and, and I think dental care is, is much more complicated uh, um, uh, it, to implement uh, than the, the one-off, you know, uh, payment uh, under the Canada Housing Benefit. And so they've been working on it, uh, but uh, dental care is, is not something that you can just, you know, turn around and say, we will, uh, we will cover people. Uh, it's a, a big country with, there is a lot of diversity uh, from province to province, territory to territory. Um, and, you know, some provinces already have some coverage for uh, uh, the population targeted here. So, uh, you know, it, it's to harmonize all that will, will be, uh, will be uh, a challenge. Well, absolutely. And, and I guess the question that the Liberals have to be considering here is uh, if, if they come back and say, look, it, we're trying, uh, it's, it's not going to be done, but at least we're going to get it started. Is, is that going to be enough to, to placate the NDP? It's possible. I think that the NDP is, you know, you said it's a line in the sand, but I think if the government shows that they are really uh, starting to implement uh, uh, the, the, the measures, especially on dental care, um, I think there might be some flexibility here. Uh, no one wants to have uh, elections in the, in the winter anyway. Um, and I'm not sure that the NDP will be in that good position anyway in, in the polls and all that financially. So I suspect that there is a bit of flexibility here, especially because dental care is such a complex, uh, um, you know, policy area. And, and I think that the NDP could acknowledge the fact that it's better to take a bit more time to do it right instead of trying to rushing uh, the implementation process and maybe uh, creating more problems. What about existing programs at this point, Professor, that, that they might be able to, to top up? It's, it's still government money, I get that, but I mean, it's money that's going out the door anyway. And I'm thinking uh, specifically of the, the Canada Child Benefit or, or maybe the GST rebates. Yeah. Uh, if they enhance those even marginally, would, 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 is that a win for, for people that are hard-pressed these days? Absolutely. I think uh, th these are uh, two programs that, you know, could. this is something that's really uh, uh, fast, right? If they want to do it, they can implement that rapidly because we talk about existing programs. Um, so the question is to know how much, you know, how much uh, do, do you spend on this if you do it and, and whether some of these measures could actually exacerbate inflation. So that's why they have to discuss this with, uh, with um, the economists and in the Department of Finance to make sure that they don't uh, make the, the, the problem worse. The other, you talked about affordable housing too, and of course, there's the rental construction financing initiative, the RCFI, as as it's known. And again, that's a cost that they may have to bear. But at the same time, the expectation is there's going to be a return on that investment uh, with affordable housing. Absolutely, and and I think this this should be a priority. But that's something again that um, will have um, a positive uh, impact over time. So. Um, you know, there the, the are different measures here. Some of them are more geared towards the long term and some others are really short term measures. Um, if you talk about dental care, uh, that will help. Uh, you know, many families uh, uh, who don't have coverage, private coverage for dental care for their children. Um, but it's not 
the same thing as receiving a check or uh, an, an increase in, in child benefits and so, so forth, you know, right away. So I think that um, the, you need a mix of different measures, uh, some of them that are temporary and short term and some of them that are permanent and, and geared towards the, the long term to address uh, cost of living issues and housing issues that have been around for a long time, frankly. I mean, it's not just post-pandemic that people in Vancouver or Toronto have struggled uh, to, um, uh, you know, to, to afford uh, a living, uh, say, close to downtown, for example. Let's talk about the politics of this. We just mentioned that the NDP have some pressure on the Liberals right now because of these programs, and they've suggested they want to see some action on these by the end of this year, this by Christmas time, I guess. Has Jagmeet Singh actually kind of painted himself into a corner here? I mean, because he's he's pretty much mandated that this has to happen. But if it doesn't happen, even to his satisfaction, uh, I can't see Professor the NDP wanting to go into an election right now. They've got some leverage over the Liberals right now. If there were a change in government say, for a conservative government, even a minority government, uh, the chances of, of a, a conservative government partnering with the NDP on a lot of these policies is pretty slim, isn't it? Exactly. So I think that um, there is uncertainty uh, because we don't know yet who the next conservative leader uh, will be, although <laughs> I, I think the odds that Pierre Poiliev will be the next leader are, are, are really high. And if it's the case... Uh, it's even less likely that the conservatives under someone like Poiliev will will work with the NDP. Maybe if it was someone like Jean Charest, you could imagine something. Um, although the base of the party would probably rebel, or part of the base will rebel against such an idea. So yes, I think that the NDP and um, the NDP and the Liberals depend on one another <laughs> in a way, um, and the NDP wants to you know, wants to look uh, uh, influential in a way and send to voters the the, um, the the message that they actually have an impact on the policies that the liberals enact. And it's true that if the conservatives were in power, they, they could no longer really do this, especially if Poilievre is the leader and we'll know very, very soon whether it's the case. Uh, but I think the advent of a Poilievre, um, Poilievre as a leader of the Conservative Party in Canada uh, uh, could change the, the dynamic here and, and make the NDP in a way even more dependent on, on the Liberals and vice versa. And so, um, but again, the Liberals could also think that they want to have elections earlier on against, against Poilier, but that will be very risky because they are not doing uh, so well in the polls. The popularity of the Prime Minister is not what it used to be. So, uh, in a way, right now, the, the Liberals also need uh, the NDP. We heard the uh, the clip just before you joined us, Professor, from uh, Dominic LeBlanc, the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, uh, saying that they're not paying any attention to who the next leader of the Conservative Party is going to be. That may be what they're saying publicly, but but behind closed doors, you know that they have to be concerned about this and, and obviously strategizing about what's going to happen if Polyev does become the leader. It's, it's, it's probably going to ha have an impact on the way they approach things in the House in this session. Absolutely. I, you know, Dominique Leblanc, I mean, I, I don't know who, he's, who he thinks he could fool saying this. They obviously care a lot about who the next conservative uh, uh, leader will be. Um, you know, some people have said, some commentators have said they will have, uh, they will prefer uh, facing Poiliev than, say, facing someone like Jean Charest, who's more centrist. Uh, but they have to be careful what they wish for, because... 
you know, Poilier, if he can win in a very decisive way and, and unite the party and the people who just don't want to stay leave, but there is no emergence of a new kind of center-right party uh, uh, like some people are, are thinking about right now, then Poiliev could really have very strong control over his party. And, and a bit like Stephen Harper uh, when he became leader uh, of the newly created party. So, um, you know, they should not underestimate Pierre Poiliev, even if polling numbers suggest that he might not be as effective in places like Ontario and Quebec for the Conservatives uh, uh, than, say, Jean Charest. Uh, but I think that um, the Liberals are not doing so well in terms of uh, public support and uh, public satisfaction towards the government. And I think the inflation crisis uh, uh, can only exacerbate this, make things worse for them. Uh, so they have to take their new opponent seriously, regardless regardless of whether it is a Charest or Poilier. And and I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a he's, he's obviously uh, in, in many people's minds the preferred choice here because there's such a, a stark contrast between Mr. Polyev and Mr. Trudeau and their approach to, to federal politics in general, I suppose. Uh, but at the same time, with the popularity ratings that the Liberals just uh, uh, got. Uh, informed about uh, earlier this week, of course, with the poll that was done uh, by uh, Abacus Data, uh, you got to wonder whether or not it would be wise at all to to go head to head against Mr. Polyev right now. There were some rumors a couple of weeks ago that the, the Liberals may try to pull the plug and uh, and and call a snap election to try to take advantage of a, a newly minted leader. Uh, but I guess history and not very recent history, I guess, would indicate that they've tried that before, Professor, and it didn't work well. <laughs> yes, well, they, they tried last year in mid-August, yeah. and uh, uh, you know Justin Trudeau went to see the Governor General, and then yeah, they they pulled the plug on on uh, on, on Parliament, and then yeah, we had elections, and the result was basically status quo, uh, more or less. So it didn't work for um, for the Liberals. Then back then they could maybe, you know, the idea was to surf a bit on the the. Um, the pandemic and the success of the the, the, the vaccination uh, uh, process and the procurement over vaccines. But now, you know, uh, people are worried about, uh, they are not so much worried about vaccination, they are worried about inflation. And, you know, as a former advisor of uh, Bill Clinton said in 1992, it's the economy, stupid. And frankly, yeah. right now, I'm not sure you want to run um, to have elections on your economic record when, when people are suffering so much uh, facing inflation. Um, so they have to think twice before doing this, especially because of what happened just uh, uh, last year. Uh, fascinating uh, time right now. We'll see how this rolls out in the days ahead. Uh, Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate your time. You're most welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. Uh, Professor Daniel Bailan from uh, McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We continue uh, to grieve for the uh, the families uh, and those who were killed, of course, in that horrific uh, accident. It's not an accident, I suppose, of the murders of uh, so many people uh, this past Labor Day weekend at the James Smith Cree Nation. Uh, and to put some things in perspective here, there's a fascinating op-ed piece that appeared in the Globe and Mail uh, by our next guest, who actually has recently spent some time 
uh, in that community and, and I think offers some insight as to exactly who these people are and, and the accomplishments that they've done. He is Dr. Ken Coates. Uh, Dr. Coates is a Canada Research Chair with the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. He's also a Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Dr. Coates, welcome back to the program. It's good to have you with us today. Always great to be with you, sir. And I wish it were under better circumstances. I read with great interest the piece that you put in the Globe and Mail because it offers some insight about what we're dealing with here with the James Smith Cree Nation that probably for most of us we were just not familiar with at all. And it's been thrust into our consciousness now. But you were just there a couple of weeks ago. Maybe you can explain to our listeners what that was like. Well, yeah, if you... It's always, we're always in such a rush to sort of pathologize situations. These are horrible things. Evil people did evil things. There's no question about that. But we rush to pathologize the whole community and make it sort of sound as though this is kind of a, an inevitable result of their, their social dynamics. We were there actually with a field school with students, half the students from, uh, from Europe and half the students from Canada. And the people of the, of the James Smith Cree First Nation actually put on a series of presentations for us. The students got off the bus and the, the people there were dancing and they were singing and they were celebrating their language and culture. Um, we had speeches from uh, political leaders and business leaders and they talked about the things that they were doing. James, Cree, uh, James Smith Cree First Nation is one of the most innovative, creative and resilient indigenous communities in the country. No community deserves what happened to them, none whatsoever. But in this situation, you're looking at a community that has actually set a really high bar for innovation and creativity, for cultural determination. They're struggling, as all Indigenous communities are, with lots of legacy issues and, and challenges from the past. But my gracious, this was a, a happy, committed, resilient, positive, enthusiastic community. Um, it, utterly devastating to have them going through this uh, only two weeks later. Were you surprised by what you saw that day? Very much so, um, and largely because, you know, the, I, I work in this field, I work in it for 30 years, our students have, are, are new to this, and, and what was really interesting was the incredibly positive nature. We were surrounded by children, we were in a school, This the James Cree First Nation is one of the very, James Smith Cree First Nation is one of the first um, Indigenous-run schools in the entire country. They've always been the, the leader in Indigenous governance. Um, what I saw there more than anything else was their happiness, and this makes every Everything's so tragic because they were so positive. The, the chief was cracking jokes the entire time and, and teasing us for being outsiders and te teasing us for being, mo the most part, non-Indigenous people. Uh, they were enthusiastic about the future, talking about economic opportunities. You know, they, they, they also were completely blunt about the challenges. They, they're living in a rural area. All of rural Western Canada is facing sort of economic decline um, for a whole variety of a whole variety of reasons. They are they're an hour away from the the nearest city, um, so they're they're not in a in a perfect situation economically or socially or culturally, uh, but they were so happy, so determined, so so blessed to, to sort of be Cree people, so so enthusiastic about about establishing greater autonomy and taking control of their own lives, and and it was an exemplary. Uh, instance of indigenous optimism and and forward-looking forward-thinking you know so so surprised delighted would be a better word um you know because you you we knew these currents are underway we've visited lots of other communities where comparable things are going on but this was a community that had its act together and having the children sitting in the room with us while we're listening to all these speeches was just a sign of a of a community that understood where the future lay
And as you mentioned in the piece, uh, I'm talking to you about self-government, because that's always going to be an issue and has been an issue for some time uh, in dealing with indigenous groups. Uh, but this particular settlement is actually three different uh, nations together, uh, coexisting and, and apparently doing quite well to, as, as a combination. Well, it's, it's unusual because reserves were set up for individual First Nations. And, and in fact, the government's plan at the time was to keep First Nations apart so they, they wouldn't build any kind of a, a demographic economy of scale. And so what happened here was that James um, James uh, Smith Cree First Nation was given a reserve. Over time, two other First Nations came to share the reserve. And they deliberately built economy of scale, brought more people on. They collaborated and cooperated. The government wrestled with this. And are we going to allow these three communities to sort of be together? They <clears throat> went through a long series of negotiations and, and, and efforts to sort of make it work. It's a very unusual thing. It's like putting three small communities in, in southern Ontario together and saying, hey, cooperate and collaborate, get everything, get everything all worked out together. Um, so it hasn't been without its, its difficulties, but it works really well. I mean, if you look at it another way, before this crisis, how often had you heard of James Smith Cree First Nation? The answer is never, um, except in Saskatchewan in a very positive light. For example, when they opened the first privately run MRI uh, service in the, in the city of Saskatoon. It's the first one in the province of Saskatchewan. And here they are being creative, entrepreneurial, um, taking advantage of the sort of the special uh, rights and privileges that they have, um, taking control of their own destiny. We, that's what we heard of James Smith before. Now we have to hear this other horrible, horrible circumstance, which, of course, is going to resonate through the years and will always be associated with that community. Um, the same way that Aberdeen in Scotland or Tasmania in Australia, they're associated with these mass killings. And it takes a long time to shake that. But the point about, about James Smith is that this is a community that, that has a much more positive profile, doing much more exciting and dynamic things. Well, that's why I was so intrigued when uh, you talked about uh, the collaboration between the, the three groups uh, in, in governance. Uh, as you may well know, in Ontario, of course, uh, provincial governments, uh, both past and present, have forced amalgamations on some communities. And uh, it, it, it is tenuous at best sometimes. I mean, it causes an awful lot of resentment. Uh, yet this seems to be working quite well and, and mutually beneficial to all three in a situation like that. And that's, that's fascinating to see. You, yeah, you, you and, and it's largely because it's their choice. You know, yeah. it wasn't actually forced on them. They sort of thought, gee, we can get better off here. We can have more students for our school, have a more greater population for health services, you know, sort of get some more for better foundation for local businesses. So it was a very smart move. Now, talk to us about the employment situation. You mentioned that they, they seem somewhat isolated. As you say, they're an hour away from uh, any major city, any town. But at the same time, uh, they do, from what you mentioned in the op-ed piece here, uh, Doctor, they collaborate with private sector businesses around there. In, in other words, I guess the employment is off, off uh, out of the community, but it's, it's employment nonetheless. It is employment in the lesson. Like, if you look across Canada, about half of the status First Nation population sort of no longer live on the reserves. That's just a that's just a national norm, and that's very much the case with with, with uh, James Smith Cree First Nation. So half the people live away. They some live in Prince Albert, which is an hour away. Others live in in Saskatoon, which is about two hours away, and and, and other places as well. Um, but this is interesting because one of the things that James Smith has been doing is setting up their own businesses. So it's not just collaborating with other private sector firms, which they do as well. There's a really interesting 
story of a relationship with Rio Tinto. There was a diamond mine that was under development in the region. The sort of initial efforts efforts did not go well. Lots of tensions with the community, no consultation. Um, Rio Tinto took over the project and the community worked with them. They, the mine did not go ahead. And so they pulled out after spending several hundred million dollars on ex, an exploration and development. The mine did not go ahead. But, they, but the community and the, and the mining company figured out some really good ways to work together. And they, and they still are friends. They, they develop collaborations that might well continue well into the future. And so this is a, a, a community that is looking for economic opportunity. They'd like to have more people living at home. If that doesn't happen, they're going to go establish companies in Saskatoon for the most part, maybe in a little bit to less in, in Prince Albert, that will generate revenue they can bring back to the communities. And we don't spend enough time talking about this. It's called own source revenue. It's where First Nations have their own money under their own control. And they don't have to go to Ottawa. Don't have to ask for ministerial approval. They can spend the money as they like. And this community spends it on language programs, education programs, cultural re renewal, and sort of social development programs. They are looking after their own, their own lives. They paid a whole bunch of money toward their own school. And we don't see that happening in, in, in non-Indigenous you know, communities in anywhere near the same way. Could this be used as a template, though, for for other communities, and as you say, even non-indigenous communities, to to try to 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 collaborate and and to try to make the best of their circumstance? I I would love to see that, and I would love to see people understand that in the middle of this horror, that the James Creek First Nation is exactly an exemplary community, and that they've got lessons to teach all of us about collaboration and cooperation. And now they're going to teach us the hardest lesson of all, and that's about resilience as they sort of struggle struggle back. When we saw them only two weeks ago, just by happenstance, you know they were they were talking about resilience and using that language and saying, you know, our communities have been through an awful lot for a long time, but we're determined to fight back. We're determined to be successful. We're determined to push forward. You know, and they were using that language before this horrible episode occurred. And I'm sure they'll be using it even more in the future. And I just hope that all Canadians, not just hold them in their prayers and thoughts, but figure out ways to support them and other First Nations across this country. When you heard the news, I mean, we were all shocked and saddened when we heard about the horrific events of, of last weekend. But having recently just been there and, and probably still fresh in your in mind are the faces of, of people you met for the first time who obviously left a lasting impression with you. What were you thinking as, as, as this news and the story unfolded? Uh, you know, the, the students who were with us, they've been been uh, collaborating on social media and talking to each other about the challenges and and the issues at hand they're absolutely absolutely devastated and and part of it is at this point we still don't know um who all the names of the people who were killed we don't know the names of people who are wounded it is l extremely likely that several of the people that that shared their their time and their and their energy and their culture with us so enthusiastically are are among those people who were who were either killed or wounded, um, and we know for sure that every person in that room knows not just one or two but probably all of the people who were killed and wounded. I mean, this is absolutely utterly devastating, and our students are really wrestling as all of us are with this question of well, okay, what can we possibly do? And so it seems to me that at this point we can tell them that we respect them, that we understand them, we understand their history, we 
understand their determination and that we're going to be there with them as they sort of move forward. But I'll tell you, it was it's shaken us to the core um, in, in many, many different ways, largely because of their incredible kindness and generosity in welcoming, welcoming us in. Um, you know, there's only two weeks ago, our students were all in a round dance, you know, listening to the drums and dancing with the communities and holding hands with them and, and, and enjoying and celebrating their culture. You know, and now we're, we're, we're mourning the deaths and, and wondering about our, our new friends and wondering about the people who impressed us so, so deeply. Is it, are you concerned that, that something like this could just tear the heart out of this wonderful community? I mean, we just saw yesterday, of course, first day of school for many people in North America. And uh, the, uh, the young students at Evaldi School down in Texas, uh, South Texas, uh, back to school for the first day since their terrible tragedy. And, and they're still grieving and probably will be for some time. Uh, I, I don't know how a community gets over something like this and, and, and tries to, to deal with it and move on. No, nor nor do I in any simple way. Every one of us in our own lives has suffered a, a family death or or even a tragedy of uh, you know some horrible thing that's happened. Um, but to have it on this scale is is really going to shake people very very badly. Um, I'm actually relatively confident, largely because of the the, the the how close this community is, how much they've been wrestling with and 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 exercising their demons from the the past residential schools and things of that sort. This is a community that's been down this path before, never in in a, such an intense and 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 hurtful way. Um, but I think that I think they're going to be pulling together. Um, I think they've got an awful lot of internal strength. Um, and I think they're getting a lot of support from First Nations across Saskatchewan and from non-First Nations people across Saskatchewan. This this is the kind of event that draws us all together. Um, I just I just hope they call on us to help when we possibly can. Um, I'm you know yeah of course this is going to resonate through the through the through the decades. But I would hope my one hope from all of this is that people will say James James Cree First Nation. Oh, that's the place that's such a innovator in Indigenous government and suffered that tragedy. Put those two pieces together. Say both of those things at the same time. Don't just see it as a as a pathologized place that had this horrible thing happen because of, of one or two very evil people. Think instead of, of sort of the broader context of the community and all they represent for their own their own people, but also for all of Canada. But as you've studied uh, the, this for so long now, I mean, uh, it, it, I, I can't help but feel such a, a deep sympathy for this. You just mentioned the residential schools. That issue is yet to be resolved, and we're learning more about that all the time. And then this terrible tragedy. And uh, now there's an inquiry, uh, uh, the, the need for an inquiry for the, the what they call the Indian hospitals uh, that uh, the Canadian government started back in the 1930s. Uh, they want records about what went on there, detailed patient records. Uh, and that's probably going to be another struggle that they're going to have to put up with too it just seems endless sometimes doesn't it doctor well well it certainly does and i think one of the things we have to as canadians you know, sort of sort of get away from looking at individual situations whether this is murder or even residential schools as a, a hugely important phenomena and look instead that that realize that canada sort of swarmed indigenous people came at them from every conceivable angle put them on reserves where they didn't necessarily want to be, put in rules and regulations to control their lives, um, basically asserted control uh, over every aspect of, of their well-being. 
And, and the interesting piece about this, we have a tendency to look at this as a, oh, if only Johnny McDonald hadn't done A, B, or C. In many ways, the most disruptive part in the history of Indigenous folks actually happened in the 1950s and 1960s. That's when the residential school system expanded very, very rapidly. That's when it was at its most intense and most destructive. That's when welfare dependency was brought in as deliberate government policy. That is when you know the federal government, in the interest of doing what they thought was a good thing, actually overwhelmed the communities with program after program and control after control, right? What we're seeing now is the a natural response to that, the autonomy movement, the indigenous rights movement, these communities coming together powerfully. Uh, James, Bay, James Smith Cree First Nation is a remarkably resilient place. Um, they're, they're an exemplar of, of communities that rise above a whole bunch of pain and hardship and, and interventions, the like of which most other Canadians will never experience, thankfully. And I think we need to understand that it isn't just one thing or one person or one activity or one school or anything like that. It's this, this total institution, this swarming of Indigenous peoples by the government of Canada. That's the kind of stuff that we have to understand. And we have to realize that when the First Nations push back and ask the government to back off, and to leave them alone and to give them the rights and authority and resources they need, it's perfectly understandable. And let me end with sort of a, a, another another sort of part of my rant on this, if you don't mind. Um, sure. When you go into these these communities in isolated parts of, 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 of Saskatchewan, almost all the time their streets are unpaved. Very few non-Indigenous communities have unpaved streets. And you have a sort of a dust hanging over communities that's totally unnecessary. Um, you know, communities have water problems. They have internet problems. They have all these kinds of things. Like, enough already, Canada. We can do so much better. First Nations deserve so much better. And the first and most important we, thing we can do is get the heck out of the way. Give them the autonomy they deserve, the autonomy that's there by right. Um, and let them make decisions for themselves. They can certainly do a heck of a lot better than Canada has done over the last 200 years. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time and effort uh, and great op-ed piece. People can go to the Globe and Mail webpage, by the way. It's still up there. Uh, always appreciate your insight, Doctor. Take care, and hopefully we'll talk again soon down the road. Okay, you take care. Bye now. Take care. Dr. Ken Coates uh, from the University of Saskatchewan. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Fascinating report that I came across yesterday that I wanted to talk about on the program today. As our, our kids across the country get ready for the new school year, uh, there's a, an organization that's put out a list, I think a very important list. Uh, the, the organization's called, uh, the program rather, is called Raising Canada 2022, and it tracks the top 10 threats to childhood, then, including things like poor mental health, food security, systemic, re systemic racism. Uh, there's a long, long list of here. And uh, we need to be cognizant of these things uh, heading out there uh, before uh, they become major concerns and problems. And we're talking about child welfare here, the, you know, the, the well-being of kids. We want them to, to prosper and to grow up and be healthy, and uh, that's not always the case. So we need to have that discussion. Uh, to do so, we're pleased to welcome to the program Stephanie Mitten. Stephanie is the Government Relations Advisor for Children First Canada, uh, the organization that sponsored the program and the, and the study. Uh, Stephanie, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, interesting and, and very poignant, I think, to talk about stuff like this. Uh, I, I don't want to say we take our, you know, the well-being of our kids for granted, but we just assume that, that everything is going to be fine. But if there's 
one thing that we need to be cognizant of here is that there can be some extraneous factors here uh, that can have an impact on kids. And, and we want to make sure that we know aware of them and talk about these sorts of things. And you've got a list here of a number of different issues that we need to be discussing here. Uh, systemic racism and discrimination. And, and the stats here are rather troubling about the kids that are impacted by these things. Yes, absolutely. We often find, you know, Canadians think that Canada is doing really well with regards to our children and being a great place for kids to grow up. But we actually have a lot of work to do. And this study really points to that. I mean, if I can highlight, you know, some of the statistics yeah. of what what it really looks like, 35 out of 38 countries for youth suicide rates, we're 35th out of 38 for the OECD. There's a lot of room to improve there when we look at something like infant mortality, which we often think, you know, that must be a problem in some other place. It's worth 30th out of 38 in the OECD. So there really are some stark statistics in here. School hungry, one in three go to risk in or go to school at risk of school hunger, you know, 1.3 million children in poverty. So there is a lot of room uh, for Canada to make improvements for kids. You know, the one you brought up about infant mortality jumped right out at me when I was reading this yesterday, uh, because you're right. I mean, that, that's a classic example of saying, well, this is Canada. We don't have a problem with that in this country, with all the medical advances we've made. Uh, but it, we have to keep in mind that this tracks everybody in the country. Uh, mm -hmm. And there are some people who are living in poverty here. There are Indigenous groups, of course, First Nations groups and Métis uh, that are having much higher rights than, than average. And, and uh, it's something that needs to be addressed, clearly. And it's something we can't just take for granted and say it's not going to be a problem. It already is a problem. Yes, absolutely. And the report, if, you know, if people are interested in, in diving in and looking at it, there's a lot of meat there, but it also does take that diversity, equity and inclusion lens and tries to break down, you know, where the data is available of what different groups are experiencing in Canada. And often, especially when we look at underprivileged youth or Indigenous youth, we see those statistics much higher. For instance, with child abuse, the report shows that one in three Canadians report experiencing some form of child abuse by the age of 15. Well, for the Indigenous population, that statistic is much higher. It is 40%. Wow. Uh, the other, and we've had some discussion about this, I guess, through the course of the pandemic, uh, is uh, mental health and, and a, a real issue. And uh, when we start talking about suicide with, with kids, a, a lot of people just can't get their head around that. But the, the numbers uh, tell a story here. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for youth ages 15 to 24 and third for children ages 10 to 14. Uh, and, and I would imagine that's tied into things like depression, anxiety, things like that, 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 that kids are facing these days and, and probably more so than, than past generations. Absolutely. And when we look at something like mental health, uh, amongst a number of the other factors, these were issues before COVID and now they've been exacerbated. And there's been chronic underfunding for things like mental health, especially for youth and kids. And it really is time, not just on the mental health, but on some of these broader issues too, where we need bold action because this every year when we do this report, we see it getting worse and we just aren't seeing the action needed to make change. Preventable injuries. There, there's an interesting category. Uh, and you talk about the increase in, in children attending emergency departments in, in the past decade. And those numbers are, are climbing steadily. What's going on there? Well, it's the number one uh, leading cause of death in Canada. I think, again, it comes down to making sure we're taking action on some of these challenges. When we look at the Raising Canada report, 
it will offer recommendations for the different actions. But when we look more broadly, there's some things that can be done to get under some of the systemic challenges. There's three asks, and one of them is a national plan of action. And that really helps us get at things like unintentional parental injuries, poor mental health, some of these issues. What are the issues? What are the interventions? And then let's evaluate to see what's working, what's not, where do we need to make changes. Um, and so I think a lot of it does come back to that that action plan of actually having a comprehensive plan to do something about it. I know some parents are going to react and say, oh my God, you look at these numbers, what am I going to do? I have to protect my children. Uh, we can't wrap them in bubble wrap and say, no, you can't do anything. Just sit there and you know be quiet. Uh, they're going to be active. They're going to want to do things like that. But I would imagine uh, when we look at some of these statistics here, uh, Stephanie, this seems to lead us to the conclusion that listen, there's got to be a dialogue between parents and, and, and their kids. Uh, so we know what's going on, uh, what they're going to do and what they're going through right now. Absolutely. Communication is so important. And, you know, connecting to your local children's hospital or their website is a great place to start, especially when you're talking about things like mental health. Uh, because I know as a parent, I, I have kids 9 and 11 and, and their mental health struggled during the pandemic, too. And it can be scary. And sometimes you don't know what to say, and you don't want to say the wrong thing. But there are some really great resources out there. It's not enough. We need better supports. Um, but in the absence of that, uh, accessing places like the local children's hospital may be a great place for you to start. Do we listen to our kids enough? I think we can always listen to them more. I say that as a, as a busy working mom, it's challenging. But I think you know, spending time to really l listen to the challenges that they go through and make that time. It, it's a challenge, but I think it's also very important. Well, and again, to go back to your point about dialogue, I mean, it, it, it opens that door, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got an ongoing dialogue with your kids uh, and conversations on a regular basis about any number of different things, it's a lot easier to, to address problems. I mean, if you don't have that communication and then all of a sudden you bring it up, there's that probably in many cases only going to increase anxiety, I would think. Yes, yeah, it's it's no walk in the park raising kids, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> oh, parenting, come on, easy peasy, right? <laughs> um, but but I, and I'm not trying to you know be flippant here because this is very concerning issues. And uh, if people want to get some more details about this, uh, where's the web page they can go to to get uh, the, uh, some co copies of the report itself and 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 maybe the, the revelation that, that maybe we need to be more cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. The website is the Children First Canada website, and the report is the Raising Canada report. And there really is a lot of meat in there, a lot of recommendations. Um, so take a look and uh, look at some of the asks. And if you have the willingness or the interest to reach out to some of our elected officials on these issues, those, those are the types of actions that can really help make a difference. Well, we're heading into municipal elections uh, right across Ontario, and the people are going to be knocking on your door. This should be part of the dialogue, too, to say, what are we going to do about these issues? School board trustees involved in that as well. Stephanie, Absolutely. thank you so much. Thank you for the time today. Really do appreciate thank it. You. Take care. Have Stephanie Mitten, you too, Government Relations Advisor for that organization called Children First Canada. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.